Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Today we bring you a very special episode. Myself and the Telegraph's chief rugby correspondent, Gavin Mayers, will be speaking at length with the England head coach, Eddie Jones, to discuss, well, lots of things, but in particular, the release of his new book, Leadership. Jones has lifted the lid on England's World Cup final defeat in 2019, and he says he was the one to blame for losing that day, and he's given an insight into his working relationship with the members of his coaching staff, and says he doesn't care if they hate each other. And he explains the thinking behind some of his infamous pre-match speeches, including the one with the samurai sword and kiwi fruit. And if you haven't heard about it, it's a little worth listening to. We'll also be recapping the recent Autumn Nation series, discussing the emergence of new faces like Marcus Smith, who Jones said he will have to wait years before we see the very best of him. We'll discuss if there's any way back for the likes of Billy Vidapur or George Ford ahead of the World Cup in 2023. And who he sees next as England's main challenges for the Six Nations. Delighted to welcome alongside me the Telegraph's chief rugby correspondent, Gavin Mayers. Hi, Gav. Um, unsurprisingly, Eddie, as always, as I've found him, he's very upfront in his book and honest. Um, what was your some main uh, few takeaways uh, from reading it? I think, Brian, um, England supporters will, will not be disappointed in this book. It, it's quite a rare thing for a coach who's in position to yeah. sort of write a book like this yeah. and give quite a lot of details. Um, a, a lot of it focuses on the 2019 campaign, which has been and gone, and, and it's fascinating to see with a bit more reflection, what he feels went wrong on that day from his own point of view and the players' selections. Um, but as we see, he's also very candid about the current players. We've mentioned Owen Farrell, Owen Farrell's leadership. Um, we look at Maru, He looks at Maru Atoje, the suggestion there that probably he doesn't see him as an England captain in his time anyway. And, you know, Marcus Smith, uh, the poster boy of, of this New England side, you know, he, he gives us some insight into what he describes as a blunt conversation, um, asking Marcus to sort of come up with three three ideas on mm-hmm. with pencil and paper about how he can improve. So I think mm-hmm. it, it's it's a really fascinating, uh, uh, I say, get insight uh, where we've still got players who are playing for him, and it it'll be interesting to see, I suppose, how they react to what they read as well. Yeah, I introduced a number of you new faces in the autumn. And he admits that um, he's sometimes taking a tougher stance with young players than uh, he, he might do. What do you make of some of the England uh, breakthrough players and the autumn campaign that they've had? I think it's one of the big step forwards. Brian, I think probably all of us have looked at England over the last two years since the World Cup and been a bit frustrated. There's been a bit of drift. Um, I think Eddie said himself after the final in, in 19 that this team was dead, but he spent most of the last 
18 months picking the same side, yeah. we've seen a clear change. We've seen big decisions made about some, some influential players who he's left out. And I think the most exciting thing from an England point of view is you're seeing Marcus Smith, he's trusting Marcus Smith uh, to come in at the number 10 shirt. I think we've seen Freddie Stewart look like a, a player to the manner born. Uh, and across the, the 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 pack where between COVID injury selections, he's had to ask a lot of inexperienced players to come through. Bevan Rudd, Nick Dolly, uh, uh, we've seen these guys come in and do a good job yes. beating South Africa, the the standard bearers. Yeah, and, and in circumstances actually where, and I put my hand up to this, um, I was wrong. I didn't think players in the front five positions, no matter how talented they were, were going to be able to withstand the physical pressure of both South African front fives, the, the one that yeah. they start with yeah. and the one we've got to bring on. Because they are both... Well, they, it's arguable which one is the better one, to be honest. Yeah, it is. And I, and I just I just couldn't see that. Uh, and yet they they hung on in there and they, and they did the job. Now, people are saying... Well, they were lucky they only had six drums. Yeah, they were, but that's what happens in games. It is. And I think the other the other really impressive thing is that there were times when that set piece did creak. We have to yeah. be honest about that. The lineup was under pressure. The mall was getting a, a real sort of point of difference, for example. Yes, yeah. But England found a way to win. England yes. found a way against, I, I, I think they conceded 10 penalties in succession, it looked for everyone there thinking, well, this is South Africa going now to grind out a victory as they do so many times. Yeah. And England found a ruthlessness that maybe hasn't always been there in those moments yeah. and came away with victory. And you have to give those guys credit for standing yeah. up. And and uh, and I think we touch upon Courtney Laws as a leader as well. I think yeah. for a year ago, you wouldn't have thought Marcus Smith starting at 10, mm-hmm. Courtney Laws as captain and a guy who looks genuinely... As a as a, prob, a a serious option to Owen Farrell, as a leader, a different leader, but one who's got the players with him and is sort of a, a, a totemic figure. Well, this this year Six Nations, um, and I'm trying to say this in the right way, barring Italy, because Italy under Crowley will make uh, strides. Unfortunately, everyone else is making them as well, yeah. which just always sets them back. So leaving that aside. You've got all the Six Nations are in very interesting positions. I think the Welsh are probably uh, more frustrated than anyone that they haven't been able to get the full squad there. And, you know, some of their provincial players are not even in the country. And, and you know, all things have not been equal for them. But you look at France and where they, they, their autumn campaign, uh, the same with uh, Ireland, to a lesser extent Scotland, certainly England. And you're set up for what should be a very interesting Six Nations. I just can't wait. I just cannot wait. Um, and uh, we, we've both seen many, many tournaments. And you think back to uh, a period where Northern Hemisphere rugby genuinely appears to be on the rise. Yeah. And we are so close to the World Cup now, which is in France. Yeah. Every team will not be challenged by time difference, by humidity, by yeah. conditions. And you've got the hosts arguably playing the greatest, most attractive flair rugby for back, a long time, yes. Back, back to your, your era, Brian. Yep. You know, well, yep. that, they, are, they are playing the way French teams, we all love them when yes. they just are playing and they see yep. a play, they want to attack from behind their own goal line. Yep. Um, and I think as well, you look Ireland and France both beating the All Blacks. I mean, what a mark of that since down, a challenge to the Southern Hemisphere. We know New Zealand will come back. They will not 
brood on this. They will find a way. Um, so I think uh, the Six Nations, England, I mean, when you come out of a, an autumn like this, you think England have come forward so far. And then you look across, and there's Six Nations rivals, I think. Yeah. So is everybody else. Yeah. And that shows that you know, we go into this tournament thinking, uh, genuinely pick a winner. It's going to be so difficult. And I think what we can all hope for is we're going to see some cracking rugby yeah. and compelling rugby. And what a finish with France playing England in, in Paris. Delighted to say that we are now able to speak to the England coach, Eddie Jones. Hello, Eddie. I'm all right, mate. Before we get stuck into the book, which we will do very shortly, the Autumn Nations series is now done and dusted. How would you, you rank the achievements of three wins? Uh, look, I'm, I'm pleased about the progress of the team. Um, yeah, we had the younger guys from the summer, uh, the good ones, uh, progressed to the senior squad. We have the guys who came back from a disappointing Lions tour, full of energy, wanting to, wanting to, you know, uh, sort out what happened on the line. So it was a good mix. Um, I enjoyed the rugby we played, uh, and there's a lot of improvement in the team. So, yeah, no, promising, mate. You mentioned certain names during the campaign. Freddie Stewart, Rafi Quirk, uh, Marcus Smith is obviously a name that's on everybody's lips. And you mentioned them in the book. Um, how do you think they progressed, particularly Smith? Yeah, no, really well, mate. You know, for a, for a young 10 to play with the Blom that he did against Australia and South Africa uh, is a good achievement. And his big test now is, is to make sure he keeps working and keeps improving. And he's certainly got the right attitude. There's nothing I've seen that, that won't distract him from doing that, apart from all the other external forces which can can damage a young kid like him. Because, I mean, let me get this clear on this. When you've pointed out the, the difficulties that, say, Radicano had and, and, and so on, are you saying that he is falling uh, foul of them, or that he might do? No, no, just to, just to put the warning signs out there, I think everyone needs to understand, yeah, he's a, he's a good talent, but it's not about, once you've got talent, it's about the mentality of, applying yourself, about wanting to get better every day, about not getting distracted by by potential commercial or marketing activities and, and to keep a good balance on your, your rugby because at the end of the day, um, we don't want him not to achieve his full potential because the number of young tens that come through at his age um, with, with his potential are numerous and a lot of them don't make it. Yeah, we want to make sure he makes it. There's a 50, 100 test cap player who wins trophies for, for England. You mentioned the leadership role, obviously, hugely in your book. And we'll go to talk in detail about that. But Owen Farrell features in this. Indeed, you said he'll be one of the five years going into the next World Cup cycle. But bearing in mind his absence against South Africa and the leadership role that Courtney Laws took up and indeed some of the other parts in the teams... Is there any reason any longer to fear um, an England that doesn't start to him, Farrell? Oh, look, I, I think the, the leadership of the team's evolving, just like the selection is. You know, Owen's a fine player, um, and we saw that in the Australian game that he's, he's come back with a, after a difficult 12 months with his, with his club uh, being relegated. I don't think we we took into consideration how much that affected those Saracens players, not only physically but, but mentally and even socially, that it had a, a really difficult, uh, there was a difficult period for them. I was really pleased how Owen came back. 
So you know, if he comes back from his injury, which I'm sure he will, he'll be a he'll be a, a key player in our in our group going forward. Yes, just on that leadership, it's fascinating. It's the theme of your book, and obviously, you know, the, the England leader, uh, the England captain, such a as you know well a, a focal point for the team. Courtney Laws, we've seen Joe Marler describe him as a sort of people's captain, and. What attracted you to him? And, you know, I suppose the other fascinating bit is, you know, again, we've evolved probably in the media, talked about Maro Toje as a future England captain. And it's notable in the book that you sort of question whether that that he would be a future captain. And, and just maybe, I don't know, dealing with Maro going forward when maybe he reads what, what you've written. Uh, look, uh I think in terms of the leadership, I haven't heard that term as people captains for a long time since 2000 where Jay Roth was the people's captain of the Brumbies. Yeah, he was a self-acclaimed people's captain of the Brumbies. He used to tell George Grigg that all the time. You might be the <laughs> captain with a C next to your name, but I'm the real captain of this team. And, and Courtney's got a bit of that. You know, there's similarities between Joe and, and Courtney. They're both pretty laid back. They're both really tough competitors um, and they both have the respect, respect of their teammates. So Courtney did a really good job and it was a great reward for the maturation of, of, of him as a player because I can remember when I first came to England, you know, he wasn't in great physical nick. Uh, he was injured a lot. He's worked really hard to get his body right and it's, it's – uh, a great testament to him to be to captain England in a in a couple of teams. In terms of Marrow, I've never seen a guy mature as much as he has in the last six months. So I think it's been a really good period for him. Um, I've got no doubt in the future he will captain. I've got to contradict myself, and contradiction is a big part of life. He will captain England, whether it's in my time or someone else's time. But I think he's really moving in the right direction, and it was really interesting. The, the role that he played for the team during autumn. He took on the role as, as responsibility for the team communications, which is when the team get together and talk about things they need to talk to. And no one's done a better job than he's done. So I'm really pleased the way he's moving. And, and as Brian touched on there, just, you know, with Owen, he's been your totem for so long. But are things up in the air? I mean, I don't know whether when you talk about the new leadership group, you know, could you see... You know, if Courtney comes through the Six Nations, you know, is it possible that he could lead England to the World Cup? Oh, look, we don't need to, to uh, speculate on those sort of things now. You know, we saw in the in the last autumn series, we started off with Luke Cowan, Dickie as a vice captain, Ellis Genji the vice captain, and Owen as a captain, and we lost all those three. Um, so we've we've got to be adaptable. We need a group of players who can step into the breach, and that was one of the pleasing things of autumn. You know, we want to have a team, and, and Brian will know this better than anyone, where, yeah, certainly a few people have got C or Vice C next to their name, but the real leaders is the team itself. And that was a that was a really big movement I felt we made a small step towards in autumn. We're, not, we're certainly not there, but, and we've got to keep working on it. Just, just finally on Courtney, Eddie, um, he, you know, if you speak to him himself, he probably thought he was an unlikely leader, two years ago, even a year ago. At what point did you recognise leadership potential in him and what convinced you that the moment was right to uh, sort of forward that that maybe gut instinct? Yeah, well, it probably came, it came through late in 2019 where we had uh, 
was spoken about before a, a psychologist come in called Corrine Reed, and and she basically de- tried to detonate the grenades that were still sitting there from the 2015 World Cup. And Courtney was Eddie, can, Eddie for the people who haven't read this, can you explain what you mean about that by detonating grenades? Well, the the end of the 2015 World Cup, there were certain players that said things in the press about how the team had performed and certain selections and and had basically gone unsaid. And, and I knew it was sitting there because I'd seen in times during that period where at the end of a defeat there was still this, well, we'll look after ourselves a bit a bit, uh, bit too much. And so we needed to get someone to come in with some specialist skills to bring that bring that all out in the open and Kareem was able to do that, um, solve a lot of those wounds. And, you know, the, the big thing I learned from her and, and continue to learn, particularly from expert sports psychologists, that every team's full of problems. You, you've always got problems there and it's your ability to bring the important problems to the surface and solve them. And, you know, in the old days, Brian, it used to be done over a few beers. You know, people would sit down, they talk about, Oh, I'm not sure he's right, you know, what are we going to do about it? But that doesn't happen now. So you've got to do it in a much more formal way and, and, and we've got a forensic psychologist working with the team now on, on certain aspects um, as we did Kareen in the 2019 World Cup to make sure that the problems that are there we're bringing to the surface and solving more quickly. Uh, um, what, what, what is noticeable um, is in the book is the changing role and, and the way that you relate to players and analyse things, you say the things don't work that, that used to work. What is it about the current crop of players and the current culture that they come through that's led you to believe that you must adapt the way in which you say things, what you say, when you say it? Uh, I, I think it's, like, firstly, the, the, the major piece of evidence is how society is now. Yeah, everyone wants to have a say now. Um, and, and people expect to have a say. Uh, we see that through social media, you know, the old, the old wall in the, the toilet people used to write their gripes on. <laughs> now it's, it's social media, isn't it? And if someone says something and someone likes it, then that becomes truth. Um, and so the team, the team now, people want to have more of a say, and you, but you've got to create the environment for the younger players to say it because cause rugby is a hierarchical game. Yeah, yeah you've, you've, you've got caps and... And they are important because experience wins you test matches. But you need that youth to come in and feel comfortable. So, yeah, you know, we've had to we've had to create, or we're trying to create a team environment that is much more collaborative, uh, much more uh, opportunity for the players to have their say, to feedback on them when they have their say. It doesn't mean if they have their say that it has to happen, mm-hmm. but we've got to listen to them more. And you know, the role of it of a coaching team is is much less of a smiling dictator and more of a, a, a smiling guider, uh-huh. a guide them to where they need to go. And so Dave Brailsford, when I was speaking to you about the Sky Cycling team and indeed British Cycling, and it's been one of the biggest success stories of yeah. British sport for a long time, he said that um, when they were having their strategy meetings, not only were riders asked to um, give their opinion, they were told they had to because he said, I don't want anyone walking out of this room and saying, I could have told them that one worked. And once they get involved in the strategizing, you know, they're feeling mostly invested in it and they feel more likely to deliver that. Now, um, I imagine that's something that you 
fully concur with. But I just wonder, in terms of rugby, which is a much more complicated, as much more moving parts and unit parts, how you can actually do that when there are so many more players than riders? <laughs> you can't, mate. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, you'd, you'd never get out of a team room, would you? You know, there's <laughs> yeah. always, like, in every team I've coached, there's always one tight head prop. Uh, that's always got to have the last say. It doesn't matter. You know, you go around the whole room and he'll put up his hand and say, Coach, I've got one more thing, Dad. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should be doing this. I'm sure you, I'm sure you can No, it's probing in our day, probing. Said, <laughs> Why are you talking about back moves, Jeffrey? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, right, yeah. 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 yeah, it was always an educated tight end prop in, in a lot of teams <laughs> I had. Um, so the process, there's a process that has to be gone through. So we have a, a group of of leaders that I think, yeah, we've tried to create a more diverse leadership group because we were very strongly a, a Saracens-driven team, yeah, and, and they, were the, they were the strongest team in Europe. They had the best players and therefore morphed into the, the England side. But with, the, with Saracens coming unstuck and, and the changing of, of, of the personnel in the team, the leadership teams had to reflect a more diverse group in, within the team. So we've tried to do that. So we have that group that we try to encourage the same thing as Dave's saying. And then they've got to take that down to the next level to the players and, and get that, that buy-in from the players. And, and to do that, they generally need the help of a sports psychologist to do that. So we've got Andrea first working with us who, who performs that role. So that, so that people do have their say, but not on everything, yeah. just the important things. Well, funny you talked about diversity because I was going to bring that. I was going to bring that up, and you talk about the role of women in the book. You say, twenty years ago, coaches would have disagreed. They would say the presence of women would make the environment too soft. Well, we were all wrong. Women bring a depth and a perspective to high-performance sport that's a prerequisite for success. And indeed, you've got several women in important positions within your squad. What is it about women? Why do they bring that depth and perspective? Ah. Uh... Well, I'm not. I'm not sure about that, but I know, like, you know, I've been married for 30 years, and my wife can sometimes look at my coaching staff. She's done it twice, and she said you've employed the wrong person. And I don't know why she she knows that. Um, and twice she's been 100 percent right, and that's about the only rugby conversations we've ever had. Perhaps she's your coach, Eddie. You should bring her on. Yeah. <laughs> Probably better than me, mate. <laughs> uh, but I, I just think it, it makes the environment more more normal now. Like, yeah. you know, just we've got a logistic manager. We've got uh, one in the medic, two in the medical staff. Um, we've got a sports psychologist, and it just makes the makes the environment more normal. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they. They're just so important for, for what used to be, you know, an all-male environment. Well, one of the things that I think they are definitely more adept at, because I've got to, um, in the alphabet, I've got to about D now, where I was at A, <laughs> is the emotional intelligence alphabet. And I think women are more naturally uh, like that. They're more empathetic for various reasons. Um, but I, but I, you know, I also think when you look through the way in which the book's framed, one of you, Although you might not use the word emotional intelligence as often as, as, as is in there, quite a lot of it does come down to that and does come down to both yourself, your coaches and players having that. Um, would, you, would you accept that uh, is right? And if, if it does have some resonance, how you go about specifically fostering that? 
Yeah, well, I think you're right, mate. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the big things you need to have now is particularly empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, be able to put yourself in other people's shoes and uh, and understand what they're going through. Um, how do you foster that? I think, again, you have to have an awareness of it. Um, you know, I know our coaching staff, we're being, we're being uh, educated in that. You know, we have classes on on how to ha- how, how to have better conversations with the players. Um, and and the structure of those conversations from the coach to the players and then being good role models for the players and to have those conversations themselves just is just so important. And that's an area that we've invested more in than probably any other area of our game over the last period of time. Eddie, on that point, and one of the things that fascinated me in the book was you sort of your approach to, to Marcus Smith where you know, you talk about feeling almost sort of a need for an intervention, a blunt conversation. I think you called it to say, "Are you, you know, are you going to make the, the most of yourself?" But at the same time, you're also handing him the device to self-improve, and it, it's a fascinating mixture of um, maybe in in the olden days it might have been a bit more top-down, where you'd tell him what he has to do, but you're telling him he had to change. But then you asked him to identify what he felt he had to to change and they're just interested in the kernel of, of that approach to leadership? Yeah, well, I think it's it's much more about now the player owning the problem rather than you solving the problem for the player. You know, the traditional the traditional model was that the coach solved the problem for the player. Um, and I think we're almost, it's, it's funny, you know, and, and Brian will probably understand this a lot, it's almost gone back to where we were in rugby, like, yeah, as a as a rugby team, when Brian and I played, the players solved most of the problems. The coaches didn't solve the problems, and then we went through this professional era where the coach became so important, and and players just listened to the coach. And I think we're going back now to where the players, because it's a players' game, rugby. You know, coaches can't play the game for for players, and it's getting much back to where the players own the game much more, and the coaches are there to facilitate the process rather than being the the, the football manager, so to speak. And at the end of the three matches, Eddie, in terms of England's progress, I think you asked Marcus three questions that he had to you know, bring, bring to you answers. I don't know how you feel he has progressed in answering those questions as we sort of now look towards the Six Nations. Yeah, really good. And, and I enjoyed the way he played yesterday. Like, he had to tough it out, mate. Yeah, they were, it was a difficult game for him, the... Queens weren't on the front foot much. He had to he had to play off scraps. Uh, they they you know like most little blokes they targeted him. They ran at him hard, and he had to hang in there. And I thought he fought really hard, which was and he went and you could see he went in the game with a really good attitude. And, and that's yeah, that's what I'm talking about that mentality of wanting to keep improving. So yeah, I think all the signs are there that he's going to keep growing. And as things stand today, Eddie, all being well, is he your starting ten? You know, he, he hasn't. Um, there's no reason for him not to keep going. You're not bad, Gavo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you want me to name the sides eight weeks before the first game? <laughs> Just one. <laughs> He's definitely in the mix, mate. <laughs> oh, look, I can't uh, fault the preparation of the players. They've worked hard the entire World Cup, and I think they've played with a lot of pride and passion. We just weren't good enough today and congratulations to South Africa on an outstanding performance. 
relation to the World Cup just last gone, against New Zealand, we got almost a perfect performance, and I, I do agree with that. But you also said that um, you, you've used some startling imagery for people who don't know of buying a samurai sword to slice up a kiwi in front of the players. What, what sort of... Why, why was that done? <laughs> oh, it's just a bit of theatre, yeah. mate. It's just right. a bit of theatre, a bit of fun. I always wanted to buy a samurai sword. I always thought of myself as a samurai. So yeah. this was an opportunity to buy one. So we found this tight, uh, my interpreter found this tiny little shop in Miyazaki. So Miyazaki's little coastal town. And it was like this, there was only, only one person could fit in the shop. And it was this, this person who collected samurai swords. So it was the original samurai sword. So I don't know how many people are killed um, because, you know, samurais, they fought, they, oh, yeah. only, one, only one person lived. So yeah. I had this, like, this antique samurai sword. It was it's beautiful. It's somewhere in Japan now because I can't bring it back because I'll get arrested. <laughs> um, so it's sitting there somewhere in Japan. I thought, oh, we'll have a bit of fun here. And I got the night before I got kiwi threw out to my room and I was practising chopping it up. And, <laughs> and then I thought, oh, well, we'll give it a go at the team meeting, just to have a bit of fun. And then we'll have to play around with the samurai sword in the meeting. I mean, you say in the book that it was your coaching mistakes that cost England the, the World Cup and, and, and so on with South Africa. Now, I've got my own views on this and I'm not sure I, I, I agree with you. But um, And I also wonder whether... This is part of you trying to uh, deflect away from the, uh, the, the the team responsibility to, before it. I, I mean, what coaching mistakes do you think you made that cost England? Because I, I'm not entirely sure about this. Yeah, look, I think, yeah, at the end of the day, when you don't win, it's always the, the coach's job is to get the team in the, the best position to win. Um, and I don't think we played to our potential in the final, and, and, and I put that down to my fault. I... I you know, I, I made the mistake of going with the team that we had in the semi-final, and during that during that tournament, every game I changed the team a little bit, and I think we could have made a couple of changes that might have made a difference, might have made a marginal difference. Um, the second thing is I don't think we were explicit enough in our language saying that we had to start again. We spoke about it all the time, but sometimes, you know, your message isn't quite right, and you'll know you know, as a, as a player again, that if the coach's message really right, the players will follow it. And I don't think we, we got ourselves to where we had to really start again and, and go again um, after that New Zealand semi-final. We probably just rolled on a little bit from it and, and that was the mistakes I made, mate. And Eddie, just on that, how would you, if you had that time again, in terms of getting that message across, would that have been, I don't know, a a brutal training session on the Monday or, you know, it was, it was a difficult time to sort of cope with the ongoing momentum of the tournament. You'd just beaten the All Blacks in such a momentous fashion. I, I, you know, just looking back and you've obviously considered it through the book about what you could have done that week that would have maybe got that message through. Yeah, probably just would have uh, brought things to a stop more and said, right, you know, and even, even it might have been something theatrical about drawing a line in the sand. Just saying, right, we've got, we've got to leave all that behind and this is what we've got to do now and maybe change the training week. Um, we trained similarly how we trained. We took a bit out of the week, um, which, you know, half, half the staff think we took too much out and half the staff think we, we didn't train hard enough, you know. So there's this, there's this 
there's this sweet spot you've got to get the team in a final. Yeah, you know? and I've I've been in enough finals and got beaten in in finals to know that it's it's just the tiny little one degree or two degree things you say or you do a training that can get you right for the game. Yeah, you know, I always remember Brian. You'll remember that '91 World Cup. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you still got yeah, a scar yeah. at the back of your head, mate. Yeah, and I'm sure you can recall everything during that week yeah. that you felt was right and wasn't right. Yeah, yeah and I and I've I've had that experience twice. Um, and you you know I'm still beating myself up about it. And I'm sure you're still beating yourself up around about the '91 World Cup. Yeah, you know, players do it, coaches do it. It's there's so, there's so small margins we're talking about here. Talk about the psychology of certainty, and you, and you're talking about not allowing your staff and team to be too comfortable. But how do you instill the uncomfortable edge, and meaning that you rarely drop the intensity, but you enable people to still live with that? Because some people have burnout points at other other points. How do you go about that? Yeah, look, I think with uh, with players, there's a there's a, a more of a natural cycle to see where they're at and, and getting feedback from the players. I think the one area I certainly haven't been good at, maybe up until the last period of time, is, has been with staff. You know, I've wanted staff to have the, the same intensity and the same work ethic I've had, and and a lot of them don't have that. And I probably have burnt out staff previously, but I think I've been a lot better the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. Maybe age has, has helped with that, mate. <laughs> Well, you say you've become an amazing. You think you're a much better coach than you were in 2019. Where's that improvement come from? Well, I think you know, reflecting on on the mistakes I've made, searching for new areas of where we can improve team performance. Yeah, you know, I'm absolutely loving the way the game's going at the moment. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's this nice mix of, and we saw it even on the weekend of this fight in the set piece, fight over the ball. But then if you're able to break that, you can move the ball into space quickly. And if you're good enough with your catch and pass skills and your running lines, you can play some really good rugby. And, and if the game keeps evolving like that, uh, we keep evolving the way we train, we get selection right, we're going to put ourselves in a good position to win the World Cup. You talk about the difference in emotions, between darker motives, lighter motives, fear of failure, uh, the approach to success. What sort of testing do you do with players to find out which they are and how you do that? Uh, well, you know, through conversation, through training. You know, one of the things we, we introduced for the last campaign uh, was this idea. We, uh, I brought it back from Japan. We did it in Japan. Now in Japan, we took them up 3,000 metres and, and they had to sit under a waterfall for, for a couple of minutes, freezing water. And it's this... Shinto cleansing, where you've got to find a bit in yourself, a bit more in yourself. Yeah, you've got to fight all the things you're thinking about, fight the heart, hardship. And we did that with paddle boats out of Jersey uh, to see which blokes could stick in. And it was amazing, mate, you know, after 30 minutes, because they're out like two kilometres and, and the wind's blowing and, it, and it's pretty hairy out there. And our, our strength and conditioning coach went out because we said after 30 minutes, you know, they're gonna, some blokes are going to get hypothermia, so we don't want to kill anyone. Um, you know, we're pretty clear, we're pretty clear <laughs> about that. Uh, so after 30 minutes, the S&C coach goes out there, John Clark, and says, boys, you can come in now, no problems. And they all say, no, 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 we'll finish this. And they, some, of, some of the groups were out there for an hour 
And it's just putting those little tests in place that are, that are, are testing their desire to, to fight that, that want to give up. Because, you know, if you give up once, you give up twice. Mm-hmm. You've talked about the science of learning on borrowing ideas from someone who's smarter and being an ideas thief. But um, how do you know who to steal from and what to steal? Uh, well, success leaves clues, mate. You know, find the most successful people. Yeah, we've we've recently got a got a the, one of the most successful teachers in in uh, in America. He, he teaches inner city schools, you know, for disadvantaged kids. So he's created this whole like six hundred schools where kids are doing immeasurably better than the the average for them. Uh, and and we got him in the lecture to the coaches about teaching better. Uh, as I said, we've got a forensic psychologist to come in who who used to used to have to sit down with psychopaths and work out, you know, whether they're, whether they're safe enough to be in, the, in a normal jail uh, to improve our communication skills. We're looking, looking to find the best people to bring in to educate us to be better coaches and, and, and to pass on to the players. Um, you talked about, a lot about your gut feel and now trusting, trusting that. Um, my view has always been, actually, that virtually every decision a person makes is gut feel, and they justify it afterwards. Because, and if they're clever, they can do it much more easily. Because it comes from me. I don't know if you've read the chimp paradox, Steve Peters. Yeah, you know yeah. about the chimp being uh, six times more powerful. Um, with, with with your gut feel, why why do you think you've be what's led you to to trust that more? Uh, well, again, one of the things I've learned over the last period of time that gut feeling's actually accumulated data mm-hmm. that over experience you've you've picked up enough information like there's that great story uh of the the fire brigade in new york they go in and and the bloke's standing there and he's there like 10 seconds and he says no we've got to get out of here and they get out because the fire wasn't on this level the fire was underneath and within you know 12 seconds the whole thing blows up but he's he 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 picked that up because the top of his ears were searing and so you pick up that those that information, that data you pick up about about where players are at, what you need to do at training, and and you still make mistakes. You know, you know, if I got a dollar for every mistake I made as a coach, Brian, I, I wouldn't be sitting here, mate. I'd be retired <laughs> in Barbados. Um, yeah, but we, we we're trying to learn all the time. Looking ahead to the Six Nations and the, the the great thing now, we've got the backdrop of the World Cup as well. I think you probably thought four years ago in your head was, you know, beating New Zealand was going to be the key to winning a World Cup. I don't know if that overall, that thought has changed. Is it South Africa? I mean, I had to write a piece recently, of, you know, is South Africa the standard bearers now of, of World Rugby? Um, we've seen France come through uh, majestically in the last 12 months. I just... When you're sort of looking for runners and riders and, and maybe just seeing who's progressing in what ways and, and maybe what ways you might have to evolve to beat them, um, is it more complex than it was sort of four years ago? Yeah, well, first of all, if we just start with the Six Nations, mate, how's that changed over the, yeah. the time I've been here? Like, yeah, I remember when I first came here and they talked about it being the greatest tournament. Well, yeah, I probably had a few reservations, but now I, now I don't think you can debate that at all. Like if you look at the quality of the teams in the Six Nations, 
Scotland's improved out of sight. Uh, Ireland's regenerated. Wales are tough, you know, and France is a completely different team. You know, what was it, four years ago, we beat them by 60 points. You know, if, if they... If they probably didn't come out for the first 15 minutes, we might be a chance to beat them by 60, 60 points now. Yeah, they're a serious team. So you just look at the way the Six Nations has evolved and, and Italy with Kieran Crowley who did a great job with Canada. Yeah, he did a fantastic job with Canada. So he's, a, he's had that sort of experience of bringing a Tier 2 side up. So he'll improve Italy. Uh, and then, then you look at the rest of the world. You've got New Zealand who are always going to be strong because they've got that that centralised system of producing players. Um, South Africa have, beat, have won the World Cup. They've beaten the Lions. You know, any team that can do that in the, in the space of two years is a serious, serious winning team. But having said that, if you look at their age profile, they are getting older and whether those players can sustain it for another two years to the World Cup is a, is a, is a question. You know, you've got Vermeulen, who's 35 now, yeah, he'll be 37 going in the World Cup. There's a few others in their 30s. So, yeah, but they've got a lot of good players coming through. And then you've got Australia who's, who's resurrected themselves under Dave Rennie. So I reckon this World Cup coming up, you know, the big thing is you just, like in every tournament, you've got to take every game as it comes. You know, every game as it comes. And uh, you can't get too far ahead of yourself saying you've got to beat so-and-so in the semifinal. And and France is... is what a what a great place to have a World Cup. You yeah. know, rugby there at the moment. Like I was there last weekend. They show every top fourteen game live. They show every pro to two every one of those games live. You know, rugby's going through the roof there. Absolutely going through the roof. And Eddie, what was the key things you learned from that sort of fact finding mission in terms of uh, prep? That, that the whole France nation is getting behind um, getting behind France for that World Cup. Yeah, they've got 40 professional clubs. They have, they have 42 players in, in camp. They can keep 28 players until the Wednesday. Um, yeah, everything's being geared towards that, that team doing well at the World Cup. And, and for us to compete against them, we're going to have to get everything aligned here. Uh, we just had a great meeting with the RFU on Friday about, about really finding a way to get everyone behind the, the team for the next World Cup. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely exciting, mate. And can you share any details of that or what's the sort of thinking? Uh, not at the moment, mate. Still in the very, um, very infant, uh, infant plans, but we'll get, we've got two years to get there, mate, so we'll get there. And just in terms, I suppose, the logistics, do you have any changes in terms of where you want, you know, do you want England to be in one place and travel up to matches or have you sort of adapted your thoughts on that? Well, we don't get a choice, mate. We're England, remember? <laughs> We're up the north of France somewhere, mate. Um, the some of the, I mean, some of the players who weren't in the autumn um, Nations squad who've been uh, mainstays, uh, the likes of Billy Fuller, George Ford, and so on. Um, do you have any contact with them? Do you need to reassure them that they could still fight the way in, or is that implicit? Uh, I have a. I'll speak to them before around selection time. Like I'll speak to. Any players that that are in the mix, um, but you know all of those guys. I'm pleased the way they're going at their club, and they've just got to keep going. You know, um, no doors closed. Uh, it's all open, and the, and the more competition we have, the better it is. Like you look at Lucid Prop now. We've got Mako, we've got 
Marla, we've got Ganja now, we've got Bev Rod come through. Yeah. You know, a young guy that's played his second test against South Africa. Yeah, what experience he's had. Yeah, we've got hookers, Brian. If you were available now, you'd be in the team, mate. <laughs> yeah, I've got Jamie Glamere playing 10 minutes off the bench for Newcastle. Dolly is, you know, straight out of the Castle Hill RSL. Um, and, and the great thing, we've got Luke and Jamie coming back. So, you know, we've built some, built some good depth in those areas. This is a uh, it's completely non secretary but I want to ask you this question. Neil Craig, high performance leader, why is this so important to you in the squad? Because uh, he's a truth teller, mate. Like, he's got no reason not to tell me the truth all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's so important. Yeah, the longer you've been in a job, uh, it's by nature the more power you accumulate. And so you need to have someone there that can, can look at look at what you're doing to the team, what the environment's like, what it needs, without fear, fear or or fear of losing his job or fear of being castigated. And he's like that, and he's got such a wealth of experience. Like he's he's the brightest uh, guy that I've been associated with in sport. Yeah, he's he's a guy. He was a sport started off as a sports scientist with Charlie Walsh when Australia cycling was a joke t- team, took him to number one in the world. Coached AFL for seven years, coached racehorses. Um, his first horse won its – the first horse he trained won the race. It ran over 2,400 metres and he got called into the steward's uh, uh, shop afterwards and had to explain how his horse first up could win over 24,000 metres. <laughs> he said, well, I've trained it for it. Uh, <laughs> hole and below, further down the track, he didn't have too much success. But he's a, he's a really bright, clever – uh, tough guy. And, and, and Eddie, just on the coaching side of things, um, it was interesting to read in the book about, you know, just your thoughts on Sean Edwards, a guy you clearly admire and, and you use a sort of suggestion that you'd love to work with him. I don't know whether, is that is that boat sailed in terms of England with you or do you think you could yeah, see well, him at Twickenham someday? No, well, he made a decision to go and co- coach France, which is... Uh, uh, his choice, mate. Um, yeah, we had a discussion that probably wasn't right at, at that particular time. Um, but, yeah, I think he's doing a wonderful job and I'm sure at, at some stage in his career he'll coach England. And overall you feel the coaching setup is quite settled now? Is that the sort of – or no, – No, we want to improve it all the time, mate. Yeah. Uh, but Does that mean I, more people or, or, or the way you do it? Uh, the way we do it, mate, and really pleased the way uh, Martin Gleeson and, and Seabol and, and Cockrell have come in and added to it. They've been good. You know, Cockrell's a, a tough, hard, got that real bulldog spirit. Gleeson's got an eye for detail and attack. You know, and that first phase try we scored against South Africa, that's, that's, that's his coaching, mate. That's his coaching. Um, and Seabol's, you know, been a been an experienced head coach at NRL, and he's going to really add to our defence going forward. So really pleased the way it is, but we want to keep getting better. You talked about being a player's game. Well, not necessarily if Razzy Erasmus had his way. I'm sure he'd like to be on the field uh, directing all sorts of traffic and one of you. Um, I mean, because you were saying you nearly had a meltdown after the Wales game and nearly did something similar. Um, what dissuaded you from doing that, and what what? What do you think of, of what Ruddy did? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Brian, the, the game's a difficult game. Um, and I think 
the referees are being put in a, a poor position by World Rugby. Mm. And I think we've over overstated how important technology is mm-hmm. because technology isn't solving decision-making. It's making it worse. Like, you know, I saw a situation on the weekend when there was a forward pass and they go to the video. Well, the video can't tell you whether it's forward or not unless you've got a camera right in line. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've, we've got to, I think that whole process has got to be refined and we've got to, we've got to make sure we're respectful of the referees. You know, there's at times we'd, we'd like to say things about the referee, but if, if we allow that to break, then, then the game will really degenerate. Um, what, what would you like to do in terms of a practical situation? Because I would like to go, I would foul play any time, um, but that is clear and, clear and obvious foul play, not, not do you want to have a look at this and see if this, ha- this pushing and shoving is. But also, I'd go back to the act of scoring as well. And, and yeah. I forget all these, you know, two, three phases beforehand. Well, I think you're right, mate. I think it should be scoring. And I think on foul play, they should say, I think I've got a potential red card. We need to stop the game. Look at this. Or right. we've got foul play. Let's put the player on report. And yep. then they can do the process afterwards. Right. Like if it's a clear red card, then stop the game. Watch it. Get the right decision. But if it's not... Then put that player on report, and all the then it can be looked at in detail afterwards. Yep. And if he needs to be suspended afterwards, suspend it. Because you know the game against South Africa, we had thirty minutes ball in play and seventy minutes ball out of play. Yeah. Like if you're a spectator, you, you you've got plenty of time. I suppose it's good for the RFU, isn't it? Because you can go and get plenty of points. <laughs> like you have seventy minutes to go and get plenty of points. Yeah. Um, but. but you know, I wouldn't enjoy it as a spectator. And I think we've got to get – the ball in play is hard to get more of. Yep. But what we can do is reduce the ball out of play, and I think that's just so important. Having listened to Eddie, um, what, what, what people might be surprised about, I think, is his candidness in saying, you know, making admissions like, yeah, he has burnt people out. Um, he hasn't done this right, he hasn't done that right, but um, he's prepared to admit that. Quite against a lot of the stereotypes, certainly, that the Celts have of him. Yeah, and I, I think probably with Eddie, he's learning, he's changed himself, and he'll admit that. You know, I think um, you probably look, even within his time with England, it's six years now, we've mm. probably seen an evolution there with himself. Yeah. And I think we've got the position two years out. He probably feels that he knows his time's coming to an end and he thinks, well, look, I've got a good crop of young England players here and I'm going to empower them. He talked about that four years ago, but but really I think, I'm not sure how genuine that empowerment be- was, yeah. whereas I think you see him asking Marcus, Marcus Smith, tell me how you can get better. He's not demanding yeah. improvements from Smith, but there's that little edge there to say, you know, I think you need to improve, but yep. I want you to tell me how to do it. Yep. And I think that's a fascinating change in his management style of it's no longer top down, but he's you know, and he's encouraging a, a new diverse leadership group at the heart of this side. Well, the thing is, coming from the same era as me, exactly contemporaries, um, it is true the comments he makes about the changing nature of society and the way you deal with players, because he said in the book. You know, I used to be able to, you know, get angry, be fine. I used to be able to be very blunt with people. I now no longer do that. Not because um, everyone's gone soft, but it just doesn't work. 
Um, and then he goes on to explain why. Uh, and that, to me, was a hugely... Um, it, was a, it was a huge um, demarcation in, in terms of where we've got to in rugby and, in, and indeed, you know, in, in, in wider culture, I think. I think, and you, Brian, it's full circle. I think he said full circle. We're back to when you were playing and you had, you know, people with jobs, leaders yeah. outside of rugby coming together and problem solvers. And then we had a period of professionalism. Well, well, well Gavin, when you only had, like we had, a manager and a coach, stroke forwards coach, they couldn't possibly know everything. And now you've got S&C, you've got all these people who have the area's expertise. And I've always thought one of the difficulties is getting rid of the clutter because every person, to justify their job, wants to have their moment with the team, the squad, during a day. And I've been told by several directors of rugby that one of the most difficult things is to get them to say, we don't need your bit today. Yep. Because they think, oh, God, am I, am I going to be sacked? They, they don't rate me. They don't need my message, you know. Uh, and, and, and so it's finding ways to to make that, that work with the overall goal. of, a, And I've always said this, you can do as much as you like as a coach, the players, in the end, have to solve it on the field. They do. And that's, I suppose, the biggest um, trust a coach has to give is, is allowing his players to find those solutions in, in, in real time and not feeling that he has to tamper. And I think we're seeing that with this England team, that we've seen glimpses of that this autumn, that... They're finding a way to win, as they did do against South Africa, against against the odds. And I, I, I just say this in, 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 in fact, people, and I know Jones divides opinion, and people are, even a lot of England fans are now quite likely to give him short shrift quite quickly. They've got to understand that if you do this, players will make mistakes. And if you step in as a coach and go against what you've said, to I know the answer to this, rather than then work things through on the field as well, then you are defeating the purpose. So people will have to put up you know, with another even coming. It might be that Six Nations doesn't go well, but do you want Jones to stick to his guns with this and empower players and do it like this, or don't you? Well, that's all we have time for this week on a special edition of Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you very much for my co-host, Gavin Mays. Huge thank you to the England coach, Eddie Jones, for joining me and being so frankly disarmingly honest you can purchase Jones leadership book now from all good bookstores and you can read excerpts from it in the telegraph or online if you've enjoyed this episode you can check out all our previous episodes by subscribing or registering to the full podcast channel it's free after all and you will find there all our autumn nation series episodes along with others I'll be back next week alongside Rob Vickerman as we look at the first round of European fixtures And a lot more. But until then, it's goodbye.